I'm going to move on. I, I think we should just jump around in the connections to a degree. So, sure. a guest of this wedding was none other than Colin Farrell. A lovely man. Colin Who, who I love. Really? Oh, yeah. it is Firth. Oh, yeah. I'm an idiot. Okay, Colin Firth. Also, Richard Curtis directed the second Mamma Mia movie, but not the first. Oh. Of course, the second one also had Colin Firth. Firth. Um, so, Colin Firth, he leaves his sick... I'm air quoting here, girlfriend at his house to go to this wedding. And he's like, oh, you're beautiful. I love you so much. I'm Colin Firth. Then he leaves and he comes back and his friend's there. And he's like, oh, my friend, we should do better to be friends. And then we hear his wife say, come on, big boy. I want to have you at least twice before he gets back. And of course, they break up, as you can imagine. And he goes off to his country house in France, which is so beautiful. I wish I had a country house in France. Yeah. It's so nice. And he is talking to, like, I guess his landlady or whoever keeps the house when he's not there. And she's like, I have this person who's going to help you clean. And, of course, they fall in love. And they do not speak the same language. But, you know, they, like, communicate pretty well. They And there's a thing where throughout the whole movie they talk to each other in their own language, but pretty much what they say matches up, like... Right, they, they both and profess it's, oh, their love. Yes, and it's and like a little... neither of them understand exactly. it. And it's like comical, like at one point she's like, she helps him save part of his book, and she's like, maybe you should give me 50% of the profits, and he immediately responds, haha, maybe I'll give you 5%, 5% of, the of the profits. profits. And I feel like this could definitely fall under, like, the fact that they don't actually communicate, but they talk. But I don't know, I really like this one, because they, like, they spend just so much time together, and, like, he always drives her home, which he doesn't have to do, and then, like, he learns her language, and then he, on Christmas Eve, he, like, goes to his family's house, and he says, a man's gotta do it, a man's gotta do it, and he leaves, and he gets on a fucking plane, and he goes to France, and then he, like, goes to her house, and the whole town follows him, which is weird, (laughs) and, like, there's this weird whisper down the alley, and people are just like, I hear he's gonna kill her, and, like, he's selling, he's selling my sister to this British man as a slave, and then they get to this restaurant, and he professes his love, where she's working, and she, in, 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 she, he does it very poorly in her language, and then she's been learning Portuguese, she's been learning English, and he's pretty good at Portuguese until this part, but I get it, he's nervous, Entire town's watching him. Yeah. And the entire she, town of Portugal yes. is watching. And then she, of course, in beautiful English, she's so pretty, by the way, says, of course, I will marry you. And then at the end, she has better English, and she's like, oh, your friends are so pretty. Maybe I picked the wrong Englishman. And that's yeah. so cute and funny. And uh, can you imagine, though, Christmas Eve, you live in France. You had a nice dinner with Portugal. your family. She's back in Portugal. Ah, whatever. You're in wherever, and you're at a nice dinner with your family. And this guy comes in with literally a hundred people behind him and he proposes to your waitress and you're just there and you just want your meat. You just want your steak or your potatoes. That is bonkers. And you know she's going to phone it in the rest of her shift. Oh, she she did not stay. Are you insane? (laughs) She left with that nice man she married who's apparently a famous author or something. My word. I don't know. I really like that one. Like of all the stories, I feel like that is the most redeemable one that like lasts i'm i'm inclined to agree i think and this is just a limit when you try to pack all these relationships yeah you don't give yourself time to build build why they're meaningful relationships and this one and i was worried about this one yeah because i'm like they don't even speak the same language talk about like infatuation and just physical attraction like that might be what we see here but, as you say, and, and especially when, like, his papers blow away into the lake and she just strips down into also, her underwear. Also, fun fact, 
there was a 45 minute meeting on set about what underwear she would wear for that scene. Of course there Which, was. Which, I get it. <laughs> Takes a long time to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know. And like, so I was worried about that one. At first I was like, I this one sucks. Um, but I do agree that they, they do give them more setup in that relationship. And we're here, when we meet them is when they're introduced to each other. So we get to see how it, that's where it starts and where it leads. All the other ones are just this like assertion that someone loves this other person and we don't know why or how they got to that. Um, so this one, it gives that setup and we see these kind of these really cute, these sort of tender communications and miscommunications and their uh, langu- respective languages. It's sweet. It's nice. Um, my one of the my the funniest parts of the movie is when he shows up uh, on Christmas to his family's house and then leaves, and the whole family's like, "Uncle Jamie's oh, here," yeah. and then he's like, "No, I, I got it. Man's got to do it. A man's got to do it." And all the kids just as Britishly as possible are like, "I hate you, Uncle Jamie!" Like one after yes, the other. I to mention that. And that was oh. a treat. Um, there did feel to be, like, some kind of, like, racially offensive undertones to, like, the entire Portuguese town. Yeah. Sort of presented as this, like, this, like, uncultured, just foreign pack of foreigners. Also, of, like, parochial foreign people. There's a... And, like, her I, fat sister is just sort of this butt of a joke. I feel like the there's so many fat jokes in this movie, and I don't get it. Like, her... And then, like, there's an ongoing joke with, um, the Prime Minister's she girl. hot staffer. Yeah, and she is incredibly hot, and yeah. not fat at all, and yeah. people just keep saying she's fat, and Hugh Grant is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Hugh Grant is the only reasonable man in the fucking British higher-ups. Do you yeah. want to do Hugh Grant? Yeah. I, I, the issue is, I forget how some of these people are related. Because, like, they everybody is connected right. except for, of course, Bill Nye. Bill yeah. Nye is connected to no one's story. Except through, like, his song oh, yeah. hearing he's on just, the radio. He's just there. He's just weird Elton John. Um, but, yeah, so Hugh Grant is the new prime minister. Of course, his sister is Nanny McPhee, but we'll get there later. So Hugh Grant, new prime minister, he has a staffer, she's a hot lady, brings him biscuits, she's like, I'm glad you won, the old guy was a fucking boring guy, you're cool, you're Hugh Grant. Um, where do you want to go with this? Um, I want to start, right, so this, this is presented as this sweet relationship, and, and sort of like, if it weren't for the context, I wouldn't have much problem with, but the context is... This man, again, is one of the most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. And this woman is his staffer. Um, this woman is also a much younger, attractive, and slightly curvy but not fat woman who is beholden to him as a powerful world leader and therefore draws obvious parallels that this movie pays no mind to to, of course, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it, all the reasons that was super fucked up are absolutely at play here, but unaddressed. It would be like making a movie about that and then making it a love story and making it a rom-com <laughs> about this, this touching story. Yeah. And that is 
so fucking... Like, why is this guy the prime minister? Just make him a guy. He doesn't need to be the prime minister. I mean, I think... He does. Like, I mean, he doesn't in this in his specific love story, but, like, I think you needed somebody important in this movie to, like, make it extra British. Like, the fact that he's the prime minister and then, like, his sister is just a lady and, like, she has her own problems and, like, it connects to all the stories and he ends up going to, like, the Christmas pageant at the end. I feel like that's just, like, cool. And also, like, I feel like the prime minister is, like, less like the president. Like, I feel like the prime minister can, like, do, can, like, go places and not be, like, incredibly... I mean, I mean, I think I you're underestimating the, like, he's not the queen, but, I know, but, he's, yeah, exactly. but he is the prime minister. He can just, like, sneak off and go door to door. That, we'll get there. I really love that part. Um, so the president comes. Of course, the president is Billy Bob Thornton. And, um... He, as he, as it always should be. And yes, he should always be the president. And he, <laughs> Hugh Grant leaves the room. And I don't know why, but that amazed me for some reason. The idea... That you, you have the president of the United States, one of the most powerful men in the free world, and you just leave the room to, like, go get some documents. I don't, I don't know why. In yeah. my head, I was like, can you imagine? <laughs> well, I mean, oh, he's the prime minister. I need some documents. Also. I'll be right back. And he just leaves. And then when he comes back, of course, Natalie is being kissed by the president. And then um, he gives a little speech to the press and says, like, we're not going to be a bunch of British pussies anymore. We're going to stand up to America. And the president is like, oh, you're making me so mad. Because <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton, of course, has a very racist British act. No, a very racist Italian accent in this movie. <laughs> and um, then he basically says to his other employee, like, can you please have her repositioned? Because in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, he probably thought she was just chasing power, which maybe she was. And I feel like for me, that is the part where like it kind of made it better. Like it made it. The fact that he thought it was about that. The fact that he thought that she was just chasing him because he had power and then she was chasing the president. I don't think... But but she wasn't chasing him. I know, she but like... She was in, just his employee. I, I, but, like, they were flirting. Like, I think in... in you no, know, she was coming in to give give documents to him. And then she's walking away as per her job. And he's like, Natalie, wait. I want to get to know you. And he starts flirting with her. So I don't think, I don't think he thought that. I think he just, like, felt uncomfortable about his attraction to her and felt that the best way of handling it was to just reposition her. That's fair, I guess. Which is, which is, like, stupid. One. Um, two, the idea, right, like, so Billy Bob, as the, pre- as the, the lecherous president, he gets the, the bad Bill Clinton quality here Mm -hmm. right that's put off on him as like i'm gonna hit on the intern just because i think she's hot and like a nice piece of ass and i'm gonna make a move because i'm powerful so they acknowledge it there but they don't they play no no mind to the fact that well both of these men are powerful heads of state that allow them to do that and suggest that there is something like more noble and honorable about hugh grant's attraction to her and meanwhile, this is the Prime Minister of England, who is also Hugh fucking Grant. And it's just, like, a guy who's never, like, you know, really... He's never had much luck with the ladies. Like, what What do you... What? What the fuck? Like... I also... I do kind of love the idea of a head of state being single. Like, he has the entire mansion to himself. That's yeah. crazy. Could you imagine? Also, that's so sad. Can you imagine? Right. But can you imagine anybody in that position not, like... <laughs> 
banging whoever the hell they want by virtue of their status and like blatant like uh, physical attractiveness i need the cast list um i mean you heard emma thompson he's married to his job that's how he became the prime minister yes um i don't (laughs) buy it but even suspending my disbelief it like the power dynamics at play i think are are stupid it it and it again it if you're attracted to someone fine if you're attracted to someone you work with fine like if you want to pursue things like usually what i'd recommend if you're in that position is like then you should get to know them true right hey he got to know her he got her address that's all you need he got her address. it's 2003 And, and so then this woman who now like her prime minister boss had flirted with her and then had her reassigned um then sends him like a christmas card that's like we can't lie on christmas as, yes as every brit knows <laughs> uh, it is but the law you'll be shot in the town square if you tell a lie on christmas straight straight to the, the stocks with you <laughs> the queen throws rotten tomatoes at all the liars on christmas day and um and she sends him a letter like you are my one and only like you guys haven't even fucking kissed yet. Guys, before you get to the, like, I'm going to profess my undying love with someone, maybe make out with them first. Yeah, tell them once or twice. Right? Maybe talk to them first. Maybe, like, hit on them first. Don't just, like, the idea that attraction is instead this, like, is love. This, like, lifelong this movie, like, wants to suggest that all these people will have, like, 50-year marriages and be together forever. And that, like, the attraction one has instantly upon seeing someone is grand and big and important enough to, like, be the same as the love of a lifelong marriage. And it's fantasy. And it's unhealthy fantasy, right? It's at the center of so many people's relationship issues. Um, and it's one that so many rom-coms present in different ways. But this movie, I feel like by having so many disparate stories where that is just the through line, is... <sighs> but my favorite, also the my funniest moment of this movie yes. comes from this... Um, this Hugh Grant story, and it's when he's looking for her in her poor neighborhood. When he pulls away at least three staff members from their family Christmases so he can go chase tail in on, a dodgy on neighborhood. On the taxpayer's dime. Yes. Um, and then he closes off a fucking bridge. Yeah, and then he just, he goes door to door in this neighborhood. And the first is just an old woman, and she's like, are you, are you the prime minister? And he's like, yes, I'm trying to get around to all the houses by New Year's. And I think that is... The funniest fucking thing. Can you imagine? You open the door and it's like the president. Hey, and he's like, Donald oh, Trump. Happy holidays. I'm trying to get to Donald everyone. Donald Trump with a cap in his hands. <laughs> but my, my favorite bit from that is he won. <gasps> there are three little kids. Those like, by the are way, you caroling? the cutest fucking kids in any movie little British, ever. Little British children. Um, and the three kids are like, are you singing Christmas carols? And he's like, oh, very well. And he starts singing, um... What's it? It's Lord Wenceslas. Lord, Wen- Lord Wenceslas. Lord, Lord Wenceslas. Again. And then his cover. That's my favorite part. His driver then jumps in on the second line with like the perfect baritone. <laughs> and he like double looks at him like, what? 
like professional caliber baritone, <sighs> and it's so funny. And then he, uh, he finds the girl, he gets her, they go to the Christmas pageant, and they get caught kissing on stage, which I think would just be the funniest real-life political scandal of British history, except for all the real ones that were terrible. Yeah, this one's funny because there are no victims, if you're exactly. ignoring the power dynamics, as previously discussed. But no child rape in this one, so... Exactly. Um, I don't think you know, even make it into the Daily Mail. I think Natalie is the people's princess. Natalie's a stab. She's England's rose, that's what I'll say. <laughs> On to the next. Oh god, where do you want to go? Um Okay, Emma Thompson is oh. Hugh Grant's sister. <laughs> yes, and of course, she is married to Alan Rickman. Yeah. She has two children, and it's kind of not disclosed that she's married to Alan Rickman for I'd say like the first half of the movie. Yes. Because of course we see Alan Rickman in his office being profoundly hit on by his secretary. Like, so heavy. Like, at one point, she just, like, has her legs open. She's like, she, like boy, what if you checked me out? Her legs. Yes. Yeah. And, like, it is so thick. And, like, he looks uncomfortable the entire first half. Like, when we don't know he's married yet, he's just like, Ugh. Yeah, she's, like, this succubus trope. Just, she's, like, she's not even that pretty. Oversex. <sighs> she's not that pretty, but hypersexual. And, again, talk about ignoring power dynamics. That she's, like, the bad one in this, like, boss employee relationship like completely devoid of context where she just is like i'm gonna mercilessly hit on my boss like and if like he he plays along but in like the weakest most like just feels like a like the obligatory level to which he has to play along he's just there is like no obligatory level i know but i don't you know, like he's playing along in the most uninvolved ways like oh He's <laughs> just making Alan Rickman noises at everything she says. She's like, he, like, why don't you park your boner in me? And he's like, Rrr. Asks about Rrr. her boyfriend. Like, he's willing to entertain yeah. this. Yeah. And then he buys her. Oh. He goes to Mr. Bean's jewelry store at Harold Harrods. Harrods. And um, he buys her a necklace. Fun fact. Mr. Bean was supposed to be connecting all of these characters as a guardian angel oh, of sorts. I did. And it would have made this movie so much better. It really would have. What I do have to say about Except Mr. Bean... Tells. True. Mr. Bean has one of the most expensive car collections in England. $71 million worth of cars that man bean has. Bean money. That bean money. Love actually money? That man is rolling it. <laughs> the British Ernest. Just killing it. <laughs> Except he didn't die from cancer. Yeah. Take that, Ernest. <laughs> Boom, in the grave. So, yes, he buys this necklace, and Mr. Bean comically takes too long to pack it up. And Emma Thompson is like, oh, perusing the jewelry counter. And it's she is, like, the perfect mom in this movie. Like, she's funny and witty and smart, and, like, I love her so much. Yeah. Oh, I love Emma but Thompson. But she's older and not she super is. hot, so she's not going to uh, get a fair Don't you dare. Ending. Don't you dare. Emma Thompson is hot. Although she did have to wear um, padding to make herself appear a little more plump and motherly because Emma Thompson is a twig of a woman. She is. Famously. And um, she, so she finds this oh, necklace. Twig, twiggy Thompson. True. She finds this necklace and she's like, oh, he's going to give me a necklace. And then on Christmas Eve, she and she notices like that he's... Like, what she says after the party when he was dancing with his assistant, like, oh, she's very pretty, and she he says, is she? Which is the wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> that is the you're having an affair answer. 
And um, she finds this necklace, she opens it, and she's like, oh, I'm getting a necklace. And then on Christmas Eve, she opens one gift, and of course, it is a necklace-shaped box containing a Joni Mitchell CD. Which, of course, I think is a great present, but not when you know your husband gave the necklace to his young assistant. Yes. And of course, she, at the Christmas pageant, like, at a very, like, she's, like, being a mom and, like, like just saying, like, oh, goodbye, Susan. And then she's like, why are you making me a fool right now? And it's just very intense and upsetting, like, yes. Her Her scene where she gets this present and has to keep on a good face for her family and then she excuses herself to have a breakdown in the other room is the best bit of acting in this movie and emma thompson is such a goddamn pro and like that you hurt for her and she she plays it perfectly because she's still a mother and still recognizes like that Right, she's not going to just scream at this man in this moment, but she's just going to, like, try to process this heartbreak and grief and make sense of all this. Um, I was reading into some of the, like, some of the stuff that didn't make it into the movie and, like, the ideas, and it is, although in the movie you never see the affair as a physical affair, it is, the writers basically have agreed he did have a physical sexual affair with her, and they, him and Evan Thompson did remain married afterwards, but it obviously wasn't. They're As clearly good. separated in the epilogue. Me? Because, well, they see each other and it's like, oh, hey, how have you been? It's like, it's like a divorced parents co-parenting vibe. Yeah. Um, so maybe they'll work on shit. We don't know. Um, but this is like the one not happy ending. <laughs> this is the one realistic one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and this one... Yeah, it's uh, it's sad. I do love earlier in the movie when Alan Rickman, when Emma Thompson's listening to Joni Mitchell, and Alan Rickman's like, "What is this?" She says, "Joni Mitchell." And he says, "I can't believe you still listen to Joni Mitchell." <laughs> just cracks me up. I feel like that's a, like a thirteen years of marriage kind of thing to say. Like, what? <laughs> you still listen to that? Come on. So I have a question here. Do you remember how Emma Thompson and Liam Neeson are connected? Nope. Because I... I guess it, they're friends. I, for, originally, I thought they were siblings, and then I realized that can't be right. Right. So they're either friends or... And at one point, he says that Sam is his stepson. Yes. So I'm thinking was his, maybe... His ex-wife died. Yes. Or his, his late wife. Yeah. Um, Sam's mother. So perhaps that was... Emma Thompson's sister. Maybe. But yeah, I was I never... Like, I, I will look it up at some point and yeah. figure it out. But yes. So here's our next story. Liam Neeson. His wife just died of cancer. It was a very long time. And like, you know, they got to say goodbye. They had a nice funeral. And they have a son who... They had a weird funeral. I thought it was nice. It's, uh, what guys, she, it's what she wanted. She wanted that I, funny song and those funny pictures. If that's what she wanted, you do you. She wasn't a cold British woman. She was very Get him queen, cheerful but... lady. Guys, like, do whatever you like, but Bay City Rollers. Yeah, that's weird. I'll, I'll, I'll give you. you. It's strange. like you can have a fun, life-affirming, lovely song, but the Bay City Rollers. Hey, it's better than the thong song. The, what do you want? Is the corniest thing in this movie. It's a weird choice. People have died, Max. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, so we cut to Sam is very depressed. The son, played by a young boy who will go on to be in many things, including Game of Thrones. And the coincidentally, Gambit. Nanny McPhee, also starring Emma Thompson. Yes. So and is the the cowboy man boy oh American chess pro in Queen's Gambit. Yes. 
Yes. And he looks yes. like he's the exact same age as in this. If you like penciled on a little, a little teen mustache. His head never really grew, did it? Nope. He just got taller. No, he's still he's still a young boy. So Liam Neeson is kind of sad, but not as sad because you know if you lose someone slowly, it's different than losing someone suddenly. And Sam is sad, and then we find out it's because, not because mom's dead, although he does love her and care about her and think about her, it's because he's in love, which is a terrible thing, and Liam Neeson agrees. And Liam Neeson then kind of uses his son being in love as, like, his impetus to, like, get out of his slump and, like, live life and enjoy his stepson. And bond with this child. And, like, he becomes the most profoundly amazing love coach I've ever (laughs) seen in a movie. He's, like... This side of his. He is, like... Like, um, uh, like Rocky's coach. Like, he's just, like, giving him all these things, and he's like, come on, let's watch Kate and Leo. And they watch Titanic, and he's just, like, giving him all these pointers. I love that. He doesn't say, let's watch Kate and Leo. What he says is funnier. He says, <sighs> the kid's, like, lamenting this, and he just says, we need Kate, and we need Leo. And you don't know who he's talking about. And then there's... And he's like, and we need them now. And it just cuts to them And they're standing Titanic. there. And his son is doing the, the Kate thing. Or like... And, and Liam Neeson says, do you ship. trust me? And his son says, yes. And Liam Neeson says, fool. And then he grabs him and like, takes him down. And I was like... And then, that's then Liam Neeson paints his son naked. <laughs> I was like, that's hilarious. But also like... If you have a kid that's too young, you shouldn't do that because, like, you're going to not teach him trust. Yeah. But, yeah. Maybe you're going to teach him really bad, unhealthy ideas about relationships. Maybe. We'll see. But, yeah, so he's an amazing love coach. He teaches his son, and his son is like, I I have it. I know what I'm going to do. Musicians, even the ugly ones, get girls. And then, of course, he says, yeah, Ringo married a Bond girl. And Meatloaf had at least a few girlfriends. And I was like... Good for them. That's, that's <laughs> Those are fantastic funny. lines. Yeah. And then Liam Neeson says, there's just one teeny tiny little side note, little bit of a problem. And then his son says, I don't play an instrument. <laughs> he says, exactly. Yeah. So he gets a drum set and he learns how to play it. He's very bad at first. And his father, of course, is like, oh, you know, the classic dad whose son gets a drum set. It's yeah. so noisy and loud. But then he gets really good. Yeah. If you're going to pursue a passion, do it exclusively to woo somebody and not yeah. out of your own interest in your own passions at all that is irrelevant of course and you should do it only in pursuit of love yes and the grander gesture you make the more love there actually is um and do this all for someone who we learn only in the climax after this grand gesture of learning this instrument just to impress this this woman who is an incredible singer, this girl. This young American of color, which yeah. I think is cute. And also, also voiced Marceline on Adventure Time. Oh, damn. Yeah. I for- damn, dog. Also, I think there's a very nice parenting moment when Liam Neeson is asking him about this. And he's like, who, who is this person you like, he or she? And like, yeah. it, it goes by real quick. And, he's, and his son's just like, she. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Fun Neeson fact. Is there was another relationship of the schoolmistress, who character I don't think we get at all, um, and her dying lesbian partner. You know. That was cut because it's gay and sad. I was really upset that there wasn't a gay story. Of course. There should have been at least. I w- what I really wish. So we can just throw this one in quick. Bill Nye plays... A, I wanted that 
they set it up like it was gonna be a gay Bill Nye plays like an aging kind of washed up musician and he just redoes one of his old songs with the word Christmas and it like hits he gets like the number one Christmas single which is a big thing in England but it's trash and he knows it and he's he's like and you know he's accepted that he is washed up exactly and he has like a um, I guess it would be his manager and they're always together but as his number one reaches its climax he starts to get more and more famous like people are talking to him again and he's like getting up there and he goes to this big party at Elton John's house and then he comes to see his manager and he basically in like a clumsy like 50s British man way says like I love you and you're a big part of my life and I want to spend this night with you and I, I don't know. I really would have liked if that turned into a gay story. I like if, th- and I thought it d- did. I had to like rewatch that scene to be like, is that what happened? And then of course, and it's not. in the straightest way of all, he asks his partner of both life and business, let's get pissed and watch porn. Yeah. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> so maybe they hooked up after that. Maybe, yeah. you know, who knows? But I mean, that was the prime opportunity and it felt... Like, they could have set that up well with their relationship or make them really close and at times, like, vaguely flirtatious if you want to make it a sort of twist reveal. Yeah. Uh, Because it's always a twist when someone's gay. You know, you take what's normal (laughs) and then you flip it at the end. Uh, Uh, Backdoor Billy, if you... (laughs) I wish... I wish they did that. They set oh, it up. There, there actually is it. a fun joke when he first comes over and he says, I love you. And his assistant is like, like 10 minutes at Ellen John's house and you're gayer than a maypole. And I, <laughs> I thought that was just yeah. funny. Um, oh, Elton. I agree. I agree completely. And the, I mean, that also gets at how, how much like that, like representation of gay characters and relationships has progressed dramatically since early what 2003 when was this movie yes right like the, we've come a long way and thank fucking god um because every single one of these relationships besides that which is just a friendship is stereotypical heteronormative conventionally attractive um so i agree but bill nye is also also very funny he is where most of these people where the humor is kind of corny and like like he, he's like a lovable asshole he, in a way like, that no one else is. And he just doesn't care. Like, at one point he's on, like, one of, like, the um, music shows, like, the weekly top ten shows, and he's ju- he just looks out at the at the camera for a comedic beat. He says nothing, and then he says, don't buy drugs, kids. Then he waits another comedic beat. Become a pop star, and they'll give them to you for free! And I was like, god damn, I want that. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine if, like, just someone... I mean, I'm sure there are comparable people and figures, but I'm, I'm just imagining, like, if Keith Richards, no, um, if Mick Jagger just, like, for some reason, if the Rolling Stones just died off at one point, and then he just became that, like, ah, whatever kind of guy. <laughs> I was going to say, if for some reason, recognizing the implausibility of that man oh, ever dying. no, he will never die, and the Rolling Stones will never not be touring. <laughs> that whole band's going to die, and the Rolling Stones are still going to tour. He is 90% bandages and embalming fluid <laughs> oh, at for this point. Sure. He's just plastic and hope. <laughs> um, okay, and back to the... It doesn't really matter. Sam plays drums. He wins the girl. He They chase her through an airport. He yeah. breaks through security. I think wins security. the girl is a fitting phrase to put on He it. does. And, like, they're kids. So, like, I don't... I'm not putting as much weight right. in this as a grand gesture because they're kids. Like, they're gonna... Yeah. yeah, dating for kids. It's different. But, it, but it's... But it's still not a healthy way to... Because what we learn is, like... He goes and, like, you know, violates federal security laws. But, and then they just bring him back. And then, yeah, and it's fine. It's whatever. Ah, boys will be boys. He's a cute white boy. What, what are you going to do? And 
And she, she says, Sam? And he's like, I didn't know you knew my name. And it's like, well, then maybe you shouldn't yet be going through all this effort. Yeah. Again, this is someone you should perhaps try to communicate with. Not like bottle up big fucking put him on the most gigantic pedestal of all time and then profess your love in the most sweeping of grand gestures. Yeah. It's dumb. There it is. I think just one more that we haven't touched on. Yeah. And it is, in my opinion, the saddest one. I would have rather they cut this one than the dying lesbian, personally. Yeah. Um, sorry, Laura Lanny. Oh, I'm sorry. Fun fact I forgot to mention earlier. Um, do you know what Billy Bob Thornton has a phobia of? What? You would never guess this in a million years. Antique furniture. This is no shit for real. He has a fear of antique furniture. And on the set, Hugh Grant would occasionally flash, like, move a piece of antique furniture into frame before they started filming just to mess with him. And I think that is, like, I understand phobias. I understand that they can be very serious. But come on, you're Billy Bob fucking Thornton. Jesus Christ. You see a hutch and you just lose it. That's bananas to me. Speaking of I, mental illness. <laughs> oh boy. Laura Linney. Laura Linney. She is an American who is working at Alan Rickman's office. And Alan Rickman, near the beginning of the movie, just calls her into his office and says, How long have you been in love with Carl? Carl. With a K. And she is basically like, The whole time. By I the way, there. guys, that's an HR violation. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he was right. So if you're right, it's not an HR yeah. violation. And he basically says, you want to have lots of sex and babies with him? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she knows. She knows. And he's like, go get him. And then Carl comes in and she just says hi and walks by. And she's like, fuck. Damn it. And um, so their relationship starts to progress. They go to the Christmas party together. They come back. And then she keeps getting these phone calls throughout the movie. They kind of climax at this point when she's trying to hook up with Carl. And she just keeps getting phone calls. And then we find out that she has a mentally unsound brother who she has to take care of because she moved to England and took him with her because she couldn't leave him alone in the States. And yeah, like that's a huge red flag. Just like the complete lack of boundaries between her and her brother and how he kind of just like runs her life. Yeah. And like, it's not like he's not being cared for. Like he lives in an institution of some kind and he clearly has caretakers. And it's like, it's not just like, like sterile walls like it's a home kind of place and yeah that one just bummed me and like she gets nothing at the end like there's no real resolution she doesn't like get love really beyond her brother which i don't think is what she wants yeah no she she desperately wants carl um a vaguely exotic hunk of a man yes and and here's this is another one right where it's this this deep attraction and they hardly know each other right this is stalker shit this is yeah. it is and again you can have these strong attractions for people but they should come from your existing <laughs> relationship with them even if it's just you know, getting to know one another as co-workers. I'm sorry to butt in, but the man that played Carl also played Jesus Christ in the movie Ben-Hur and um, Xerxes in 300. Oh, no shit. He is he a, Xerxes. Be- he was a beautiful chocolate oh, man. man. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is funny because Laura Linney, you know, she's not a bad looking gal. Yeah. But like, this guy's like the, the male version of like Kira Knightley or something. Yeah, he's, you know. 
very handsome and exotic. And he seems yeah. he seems like he doesn't have a lot of I don't know how to say. It. Like he seems nerdy in a way that like he probably he's not like, you know, dating a lot. Or like he doesn't like bring girls around yeah. or have pictures on his desk. He seems like. a little shy in his own way. Yeah. Um but again, we learn about this deep, deep attraction that she's never acted on in any way, shape, or form. Um even though they don't have a, a very strong connection at all. And and then like she so Laura Lin- Linney doesn't assumes he wouldn't like her, which is like which is sad and, and feels real that you might be like, I'm into them and I, I don't see I don't think I'm good enough to for them to want me. It's like those vibes and they're very sad. Um and then they dance and it's like, oh, he does seem interested. And then yeah, he comes back to her place and they're they're hooking up. Guys, just don't answer your phone. True. If you're about to have sex with someone you apparently have been obsessed with for years, just don't answer your phone until after you end, you come. And she also has a very annoying ringtone. Yeah. Uh, also, Laura yeah. Linney has gone on record saying that she wished that she like her character didn't pick up the phone. Yeah. Like, it's so it's so it's absurd in its own way. Like the fact that she feels she needs to be on call is like it sucks. Like that they they didn't that she didn't learn or recognize that that's bad and unhelpful towards what she wants. You could argue that it's like kind of a self sabotagey thing that's going to keep her in a state of not having love, which is sad and I guess more more real than a, a lot of what these other things are portraying. But I still couldn't get over that like how that attraction to a man she hardly knew was a deep profound love i just don't think you understand british culture (laughs) but i mean it's like there him and her always seem to be the last ones at the office it's christmas eve and he's leaving she's still there like working and he basically he tries to say something and then he just says like merry christmas and he leaves and then she's the last one there and then she gets a phone call from her brother and talks to him and that's it. Right. Fun I fact, think her she... phone was on silent. <gasps> Damn. So maybe she was learning, but maybe. too fucking slowly, if you ask me. I mean, and like, I think the last thing you we see is like... get one shot with Xerxes. Yeah. Uh, it's just... That's such a bummer, man. Like, It is. <laughs> we really chose again, a good one to end again, on, Again, if you're not like a pert young hottie, well, these might not work out so well for you. Yeah. If you're a pert young hottie, you'll be fine. You'll get the writer, or the friend and his best friend, or the prime minister. True. But oh. if you're older than 40, sorry, life sucks. Well, do you think we've covered it? I'm trying. Oh, I did one oh. one other one thing that, that was a, a very cute little wink and a nod um, with Liam Neeson is when Sam's asking him, like, well, are you gonna, you know, do you have any love in your life, like, since since mom died? And he's like, you know, he's, no. He's sort of resigned himself to be a widower, and he's like, no, I'm not. Um, he's like, he's like, no, I think that's it for me. He's like, unless Claudia Schiffer knocks on my door. Um, and then at the school play he meets the mother of one of the parents who is in fact played by 
none other than Ms. Claudia Schiffer. Um, and they meet and have this little cute moment. And then in the epilogue, we see that they've been dating for those three months. And that's sweet. And guys, that's how that's healthy to meet someone and not be like, just I'm going to shout my love from a mountaintop about how I need to marry them immediately, despite having never like kissed or shared my interest, um, is to date them, (laughs) to maybe ask them out for a cup of coffee and go from there. And that's apparently what he has done. And so I describe that as the only healthy relationship that seems to be working out well from the limited insight we get into it. Do you know how much money Claudia Schaefer made for her one minute cameo? A million dollars. 300,000. But that's still, that's sick. good for a minute that's of great. film. She was in and two get, scenes. Yeah, you get to just hit on Liam Neeson and you make $300,000. I could do that. Yeah. Also, and she looks great. The word actually is spoken 22 times in this film. Oh, actually. actually. Love actually. <laughs> love, love actually. Oh, wow. What a, what a trip we've been on. Stupid we laughed, we cried, man. we learned that a lot of relationships are unhealthy. Yeah. And you know, that's what you gotta do. Well, Merry Christmas. Go watch that movie if you want. Yeah. It's dumb and enjoyable. Laura Dern is not in it. You know, this is, that's really, what we do independently is we watch movies just to see if Laura Dern's in them. (laughs) And like 90% of the time she's not, but every once in a while you get a Dern. What did we learn from Dern? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, she wasn't even there. Like not even mentioned. (laughs) Not even peripherally mentioned. She was just absent. No Diane Ladd, no No, Bruce Dern. Nobody. Although, uh, we had a few people that are like one degree from Laura Dern, but you know. Right with Liam Neeson in Cold Pursuit, True. which would have oh made my, my god, worst ten about list. Cold Pursuit. Um, we got Alan Rickman from uh, that weird noir show and King of the oh, Hill, of yeah. course. And I'm sure there's some others. Yeah. I don't have the mental energy to do that anymore. No. So we do have a hard out. So how about we move on to our last segment of the year? In fact. Yes. We are doing our top 10 films of the decade, 2010 to 2020. These do not feature Laura Dern. They can. None of mine do. None of mine do. Well, would you like to, would you care to begin this time? Sure. What is your number 10 film of the decade? number 10 is a film from 2014 um, that is intense and a biting satire and a critique of media and more broadly of of news media local news media and more broadly the the coercive power of capitalism in a wonderful performance by jake gyllenhaal perhaps even better than october sky and that would be nightcrawler that is a fantastic movie where i i would describe his character as uh perhaps an an autistic Patrick Bateman. Yes, that is very good. <laughs> Which that is a very good description. He right, he's he's an absolute psychopath. He's but he's not smooth. He's creepy and he's weird as all hell, but very outgoing and puts people in very uncomfortable situations and basically is willing to he films 
like car accidents and stuff and like to as a, an independent outlet to sell the footage to local news um and it's so good and he and Rene Russo is like the studio exec at the local news and he like coerces her into all sorts of fucked up shit because he has this thing that she needs because it's worth money to her company and it's it's very dark it's violent it's good. Yeah. Number 10. Number 10. <laughs> I was trying to think of something else to say about that movie, but you covered it. I mean, that, oof. that was one of the last movies I watched at the bar I work at before we shut down. Oh. Very good one. My number 10, this, this was out of a three list. So I had three whittled down for this top 10 spot. I have a lot of historical, like, semi-fictionalized dramas on this top 10 list. This is my number 10. 2014 also. The Imitation Game. Ooh. Also about a clearly neuroatypical man. Of course, this man did much better things than the, <laughs> the titular a, Nightcrawler. A, an international hero. Of course, Alan Turing, the queer man who cracked the... Um, the, the, Enigma. the Enigma machine, basically the Nazi code breaker. And uh, he essentially was a massive part of the British beating the Nazis and, of course, ending World War II. And, of course, for this, he was chemically castrated by the state and then uh, took his own life by eating a poison apple. Yeah. And uh, this is just a great story of his life, of course, played by the funny-faced what's-his-face man. Benedict um, Cucumber. Benedict Cucumber Patch. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting story, of course, to see it all. It's nice that it finally got recognition because almost nobody knows the full story of how yes. it all happened. And of course, him as a person. And it's it's like an absolute national outrage and tragedy. True. That this man like was rewarded with chemical castration after and... literally being one of the single most important figures in in beating the Nazis in World War II. And it took nearly a hundred years for him to be forgiven publicly by the Crown. And I believe it happened right around the time of this film, yes. that he was officially pardoned for a thing that's not a crime. But, you know, it's fine. It's yeah. whatever. But yes, very good game. Very good game movie. Of course, not to stretch this out, but I it, it was between this, um, The Theory of Everything, which, of course, is the story of... Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking. And thirdly... Steve Jobs, which is just the story of Steve Jobs. Oh. Nick with that biopic I, I love a biopic. I don't have any biopics. I have, like, I, this one technically isn't a biopic, but I have, like, four movies that are, like, his, very heavily historical fictionalized dramas of tales. Got but anyhow, number nine. Number next. nine. This is my only documentary. Oh, very good. This one comes from 2012, and it's a film called The Queen of Versailles. Ooh. Do you know this movie? Oh, that sounds so familiar, but I'm not sure. This is a look at Jackie as the titular queen and her husband David Siegel are the owners of Westgate Resorts and are they they are billionaires. Um he and she is on a quest as this sort of bimbo-esque blonde blonde sort of trophy wife she was like miss florida or something like mm -hmm. pageant she um and is this absurd character it's a look at her 
um, mainly her. She's she's the focus, and her quest to build their new mansion, which they are calling Versailles after the palace, the French palace, and it is in some ways the largest home. It's a hundred million dollar. That is a lot, and it is this absurd quest and kind of testament to insane concentration of wealth and inequality and hubris at the time and so the movie came out in 2012 they started filming it pre-recession when everything was all sunshine and roses for these people Mm -hmm. so you get to watch in real time how this all falls apart with the recession and now they can't afford it and things get bad and this film, there's there's a dash of schadenfreude to see things not work out for this obscenely wealthy couple. And him especially is like your typical Trumpian prick CEO, like piece of shit. Um, and, but it, it gives them heart. And especially her, it's a focus on her. It gives, you're empathetic, you're sympathetic towards her. It's great. It's funny. It's beautiful. It's ridiculous. It's very entertaining. Um, yeah. Very good. Sorry, I am typing. I just wanted to look up one quick thing about a particular character in my next film. M. Night. No, not M. Night. So, um, one of the men in this film is famous for playing an Eminem for many a decade. Of course, J.K. Simmons in the 2014 movie Whiplash. Whiplash. I very much loved this movie as a youth, because I was a youth when this movie came out to some degree. Um, I was a student of music, so I'm very familiar with the idea of a... um, Angry music teacher, as we all are, I'm sure. A screaming man. Verbally and physically assaulted by his music teacher at a young age. No, no, I wasn't. He was a very good man. Tim Reggie, I love him. But, you know, he yells. Music teachers yell. They want, want what they want. And, of course, in years prior to this movie, I listened to a very good audio essay by a friend of mine, George Robb, of the band The Philadelphia Funk Authority, where he berates this movie for being a terrible demonstration of teaching a person music. And I agree with him, and it is true. But this is just such a good, dramatic, tense movie, which centers around a topic that is seems so banal to the idea of drama intention a boy yes. learning how to play drums like yes. usually drama intention low is sticks like, and the movie is insane. like it is just the most ridiculous tense thing and if like if you are not a good musician or if you've tried to be a musician and just haven't done as well or like you just do it as a hobby this movie just feels so extra intense because it's like the idea of somebody pushing you beyond any possible reasonable limit to to pursuit to, of like yes. absolute perfection and of course um Miles Teller, who played the the student in this film, learned to play the drums and like destroyed his hands basically yeah. doing this movie. And it's... as as all tellers do, he doesn't say a word. Yes, of course. He says not a word. He drums his words. <laughs> Little horn, like Whispers the Marx brother. JK Simmons here. <laughs> ah, but yes, very good movie, I would suggest. Excellent film. 
I I was considering it, but I hadn't seen it long enough to. If I'd watched it again, it could very well be on there. The when I was going through year by year, just basically like movies of the years, I kept seeing movies, and I like remembered those times in my life where I watched that like five times, or I saw this, or like I watched yeah. that stretch of movies, and I was like, "Whoa, time, man." Um, number eight for me. Yes, uh, the Academy agreed with this with me on this one. Twenty nineteen. It is Parasite. By Bong Joon-ho. Yes, it oh, is. It's, uh, it's such a... Uh, it spans like five different genres. It's wonderful. As are so many of my favorite movies, a scathing critique of capitalism. Um, none of it's ham-fisted. All of it's fun. And like, it starts off as like a family caper. And the sort of feel-good family caper, and it devolves into a horror movie of sorts. It's wonderful. If you haven't seen it yet, like, don't let the fact that it's a best picture, like, fool you into thinking it's not fun. It is such a... Or that it's a foreign film. It is such a fun ride. It is intense. It will stick with you. It's like nothing I'd ever seen before. It's great. I will just say now that this was my number six, Ooh. and I will just continue on what you were saying. It is, it is a movie I saw in theaters, and it made me feel ways that I can only imagine people felt like when Alfred Hitchcock movies were coming out, like just so deeply tense and dramatic, and like gripping the hands of your seat, and like afterwards yeah. feeling like you had exhausted. Like yes. it is just one of those movies. If you see it in the right situation, it will affect you so profoundly and i feel like so few movies do that anymore that will just like wreck your day it is very a plus would definitely suggest it is on hulu i believe you could easily access it um number eight for me will be the 2015 i i no we weren't i jumped back to six because oh you're right so i'll just i'll skip over my six later um so number eight for me straight out of compton 2015. Oh, I still haven't seen it. It, I, I went to see it in the now, I believe, derelict theater of my youth, the Regal Cinemas in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. I was stood up on a Tinder date, so I saw it alone. I was, I would say, the minority. There were many a not-white folk, but it was a very good time. I sat almost directly in front of the screen, first row, just looking up at Giant Ice Cube Sun, and it was a terrific film. It got me into, like, a different era of music. I, since then, have become very involved in, like, NWA and, um, of course, uh, Wu-Tang Clan. Like, that just, it introduced me to a new world. And I feel like the story is very good. It's very interesting. Just all of the incredibly insane things that happened around this band for, like, the four years they yeah, were a there, band. Yeah, there's some characters, for sure. Like... I feel like I feel like their lives are comparable to like the years that the Beatles toured. Like it just so much happened in that short stretch, and like they all went such different ways. Like Ice Cube is now like a family celebrity, and he's, he died of AIDS. Like there's so much in that story. I cannot suggest it enough. If you don't know anything about MWA, it is a perfect introduction. Yeah, and, and a lot of course, people don't know the title. Paul Giamatti. The title. <laughs> Pig fucker. Yes. <laughs> Pig fucker himself stars in this movie as the White Devil. The title is taken uh, as as a twist on the classic Weird Al album, Straight Outta Linwood. Yes, uh, <laughs> Weird Al also ghost wrote this film <laughs> and most of NWA's music. <laughs> and good on him. Uh, number seven, Max. Number seven. This movie um, was released in 2014, but was started 
in the decade prior. Oh, you motherfucker. And it is, of course, (laughs) the Richard Linklater film Boyhood, which is one of one of the best movies of the decade just in in execution alone that he um would film the same actors every few years as characters in a a long narrative arc so you see them grow especially the 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 titular boy and his sister start as young kids and then grow through adolescence um and so, like, the fact that it exists and was able to be made in this way is incredible in its own right. And also, it is such... Most adolescent coming-of-age films will kind of... They'll make the focus, like, these turning points in people's lives, like, the night they lost their virginity or had their first beer. And both of those things, as I recall, happened to the boy in this movie. But neither of them are, like, what changes him. And it's more, like, these just these more intimate, quieter moments that impact him in ways that parallel reality much better. And I loved that about it. I love that it showed transformation and growth um, through kind of just very, very small what felt like very real realistic ways. I have a incredibly distinct memory of watching this um, with my aunt and uncle because my parents were on a vacation. We were staying with them and we got it from a red box video service at a CVS and it was incredible. I had never seen a Richard Linklater film at that point in my life. I don't believe I might've seen Days and Confused, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah. School of Rock. What? Yeah, man. No. Yeah. Really? Hell yeah. I did not know that. There you go. Cool. Um, but yeah. Pipe and smoke it's it. a very good movie. It, it, it's just a fascinating concept. And speaking of which, I know I have mentioned this quite a while ago now, but Richard Linkletter is working on another movie that I am thrilled about. It's called Merrily We Roll Along. It is based on a stage musical that basically the characters begin as aged, like poisoned by fame, Hollywood fat cats, like the titans of showbiz and as the musical goes along they age in reverse and it shows how they became that way and like all of the struggle and triumph and just everything that made them the way they are in the end and of course he is filming this across the course of 20 years now and he's beginning now so he's beginning at the end of the movie and he will film these characters every few years as they age so the last thing he films will be the the beginning beginning of the movie movie. and I think it's going to be so cool I hope so but that almost feels like how do I want up Boyhood I mean yeah but and also I don't like that he announced it because Boyhood was a a closely guarded secret secret. and then he just announced one day like hey this is coming out in a month and I made this over the course of a literal child's life Um, I will only add if you want to see a wonderful spin on Boyhood there is an episode of the sorely underwatched cult classic HBO cartoon Animals um, that is uh, in the style of boyhood about the life of a fly over the course <laughs> of like a day that split in as if it spans many years. Um, What's your number seven? Number seven for me will be the 2016 film Jackie. Oh, I didn't see it. This, of course, is a historical drama covering the day of John F. Kennedy's assassination from the standpoint of Jackie Kennedy, who got 
I'm going to say fucked around by everybody on this day. Her husband was killed in front of her, and then she was basically just dragged around as a prop to be used in, like, a swearing in, and then she had to go home. She, of course, did this all covered in his blood because, in her words, she wanted to see what they did to him, which is incredible. And Natalie Portman, of course, plays Jackie Kennedy, and she just gives an incredible performance of a broken woman because, you know, when your husband's killed in front of you and he's the president, that changes you a little bit. Um, The main... um, how do I say this? The main um, framing of the story is her telling the story to a journalist. And of course she tells, like explains the entire day and it's, we see the flashbacks and we see how it happened. And then at the end, she's basically like, you can't use any of this. I'm Jackie Kennedy. And he says, of course. And of course later it did come out because this movie is here. Another point in this film, she talks to John Hurt. Of course, this will be one of his last films because he died. He plays a priest because they were very religious and, I don't know where I'm going with this. It's a very good film. It's one of my favorite Kennedy-related films, only close to Parkland, which is a differently involved but very dramatic and um, uncomfortable history movie about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. So I would say watch Jack. I will. It's very good. Maybe also, maybe Parkland maybe is very pitch. good, but less good. But also, this is... JFK, not great. Wild ride, though. <laughs> you know. <laughs> He did his best. <laughs> um, number six, Number Max. six for me. I'm going spooky on this one. Perhaps my favorite um, in the poltergeist genre, House Ghost, uh-huh. is 2014's The Babadook. <gasps> um, the story of a, a grieving mother who has lost her husband and her son who is haunted by... Oh, deliciously frightening, sort of almost whimsical child drawing monster. Um, and the monster kind of embodies the mom in different ways. It's it's sort of a um, an allegory of overcoming grief, and it's beautiful in that regard, and it is creepy as hell. <laughs> Loved it. I saw that at a drive-in theater this summer. Oh, really? Very good. Um, my number six was Parasite. Your number five, Max? My number five. This is my favorite breakup movie. Um, beats even Marriage Story, which feels like a rom-com. This one feels like, at times, a horror movie. It is 2010's Blue Valentine. Ooh. Starring Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling is a wonderful actor and Michelle Williams is an even more wonderful actor. It is difficult to watch. It is very emotionally intense. It spans like a lot of flashbacks for when things were good, but it's taking place mainly at the time in their lives where things are falling apart. It is a painful watch. It is heartbreakingly good, very viscerally intense. Loved. Very nice. I have not seen that, but I have always heard about it. So perhaps this is the year. 2021. Blue Valentine. Uh, My number five is the 2018 rehashing of the immense franchise Halloween. Really? Halloween, yes. I loved the new Halloween. I have always been a big fan. A few years ago, I watched all of them in a row, like over the course of the month of October. And of course, you know, there's some stickers in there. There's like 12 of the movies before (laughs) the new one came out. And this one basically picks up directly after the first one not directly but it picks up like 20 years later after the the night of the first one which would technically include the second night story but 
it is a fantastic movie with a lot of original cast and a lot of original themes. And early on, two podcasters are killed, and it's kind of a thing you're supposed to laugh at. And I think yeah. that is... I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We deserve it. Yeah. Number five, uh, four. Number four. This one uh, is an animated film, a family classic. It is 2010's Toy Story 3. Oh, yes. Um, Man, 2010? Yeah. Holy crap. I think. I might have written that down. No, that feels right. That is I've right. I loved that movie for a Shoot. long time. Um, That's it's, I still haven't seen 4, um, but it's my favorite of the first three. And I love it, unsurprisingly, for its wonderful anti-capitalist themes. That is true. Where the toys find themselves oppressed by... Lots of Fasto, the powerful sort of mob boss teddy bear. Um, and what they discover is, uh, I describe it as a sort of, they have an anarcho-communist revolution where they realize that if they all work together, suddenly they all have the freedom they want and aren't beholden to the power of one bear. And that makes life better, even for that bear. It's great. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Viva la Toy Revolution. Viva la Toy Revolution. Uh, number four for me will be The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the 2018 and I believe most recent film by the brothers... Cohen. Cohen. Thank you. I forgot the name. But yes, I love this movie immensely. Although it is a Western, I believe it is pretty much a culmination of their career to this point because it just includes so many actors and stories and so much of like their vibe of filmmaking. I still have not seen it, and you just completely oh, buddy, you me. like it. It's, it's, it has everything. Like it has the end is basically just a long form story told with like one setting and just like two guys telling it, and then like you get handicap kid, you get other stuff that I, <laughs> I you know, I'm not in the right mindset to explain kid and this, other stuff. It's very good. Number three. Number sir. three. This one, I guess this is biopicky. Um, this is a 2015 film about David Foster Wallace called The End of the Tour. Starring mm. Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg as a reporter and aspiring author who follows him around for an interview piece. Um, this movie. I, as many young, well-educated white men do, love David Foster Wallace. And in my early 20s, he moved me deeply. He's a wonderful writer. Um, And going with his themes, I was nervous for this movie. I wasn't interested in this movie because it felt that to synthesize his ideas into like... Uh, a character in a film would feel antithetical to what he wrote like he was very he didn't want the fame he didn't want sort of the cult status that he got um it was a big part of his mental health issues and ultimately his suicide um and and he would he would scoff at those ideas so at first this idea that you could kind of make this movie about him as an individual felt like it would miss the point of his work. But the movie doesn't. The movie recognizes that completely. And it's largely about Jesse Eisenberg wish, wanting to be as good a writer as David Foster Wallace and trying to like absorb that skill from the man as an individual 
without recognizing that you can't and that that's missing the point. And to put DFW on this pedestal that he does is like a, a central theme to the movie. So it felt like the perfect way to to capture the themes of his writing. Hmm. Loved it. I will also have to check that out. Um, I am just going to do my top three in a row now because I do we contractually have to leave your house very shortly, and I would also like to use your toilet before I leave your house very shortly. So my number three will be Saving Mr. Banks, the story of the making of Mary Poppins, also starring um, Emma Thompson. Um, it tells the very heartbreaking story behind Mary Poppins and why she wrote the books and how she used them as a coping mechanism, and of course how it took years for Walt Disney to convince her to let him make the movie. And it's just a very harrowing table tale. Of course, um, Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney, his relative they are related in some way it's a very good movie i saw it in theaters like three times which at that time i had never done with any other movie um i would suggest it and it is a disney movie so i made it into the list uh number two will be raw a french cannibal film i saw it in an art theater it is the story of a girl going to school and she eat, she is a vegetarian she's raised a vegetarian but when she eats meat it awakes something in her and she has to like eat human flesh Cool. And it's, all, it's so fucking cool. Love that. And I took a person I care about very much to that movie, and we made out afterwards, and that was our first kiss. So yeah, that was a good. Yeah, time. that's where you start, guys. Yeah, start with a making French out cannibal out of, film after a French cannibal and, movie in a movie theater in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right next to a a historic and dead steel factory. Yeah, God bless. As is every building in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it is. They all come with adjoining steel factory. And my number one film of the decade. This took a lot of thinking, but it came down to Loving Vincent. The 2017 historical fiction, I would say, of the end of the life of Vincent van Gogh. Of course, this movie is very important to me. I loved it very much. I... It, it was the same thing as Parasite, where it, like, affected me so deeply in the theater, like, I couldn't get up for a few minutes because I was just so fucking sad. And it is also entirely painted. The entire film is a stop-motion, oil-painted film. It took years to make in a team of over 100 artists, and it is just a visually stunning movie, along with the fact that it tells the story of the end of Vincent's life also. Basically, all of it was based on the letters that Vincent wrote to his brother, which you can get in a book, and it is a very good book, I would suggest. So yes, his brother Dale, Dale, Dale Van Gogh. Um, I haven't seen either of those last two. I would uh, heavily suggest both. Um, but yes, those are my top three for the decade. And for me, Maxwell. my number two, I've already gushed about on here because it was my between two Durans early on. Um, but it's 2012's Francis Ha, oh, Francis. starring Greta Gerwig, directed by Noah Baumbach. Um. Lady Bird could have been on this list, and probably they're honestly both in my top ten of the decade. But, you know, for the sake of diversity, pick one. And I go with Francis Ha. It, um, just a love letter for two young young people who don't have their shit together. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's so touching. Intimate. Very funny. Um... And moved me deeply. Lo- I, I absolutely adore this film. Highly recommend it. Um, if for nothing else, the payoff of why it's called Francis Ha <laughs> is revealed at the end, and it's the funniest joke in the movie. Oh, I, and I still need not to see this. Spoil it. Um, my number one from Sean Baker, I believe. 
I'm getting that name right, I hope. Yep, 2017. Um the florida project oh yes what a fucking movie if you have not seen this movie go see this movie it's about um a a young single mom who has a lot of troubles in her life living basically in a motel mainly and and about her daughter mainly told through the lens of the daughter so it deals with these very very intense themes of poverty all of it is as the title somewhat suggests in the shadow of disney world and there's this implicit role of like the wealth and power that they do not have and do not have access to um and the problems it creates but again shown through the lens of a child who has no idea about any of this um who doesn't can't see the the issues her mom is struggling with even as they play out in front of her um and is completely innocent and funny and sean baker did this wonderful job of casting non-actors who really encapsulate these characters in very real ways um willem dafoe is of course not a non-actor and he plays the the manager of the motel he's excellent in it sort of a, a world weary sad man who wants to help um and it culminates in this escape to Disney World that many people, many people's critique of the film was that. I disagree completely. I loved, I felt it was the perfect sort of fantasy ending to put on this story when you know it's not going to play out, but it's trying to play out in, under the mythical fantasy of Disney. Absolutely loved it. It's funny as all hell. Completely heartbreaking. Um, go see it. It is a fantastic feature film. Yeah. Well, well I've got to kick you out of my house. Any, sure. any last words? Well, um, I believe I get eight seconds before the copyright kicks in, so... Oh, there better be words in the first eight seconds. Well, I hate my whole life. <laughs> that was supposed to be The Christmas Is All Around You by Billy Mack from... Uh, love actually well that's what i get um i guess merry christmas to you max and to all our listeners thank you for spending this lovely year with us we will be back in 2021 with a perfect world and the larry sanders show oh fun yeah so it'll be a nice start and we'll see what 2021 brings we will eventually have to do a podcast about something else so see you then see you then if you stuck through it all and (laughs) i hope you enjoyed our longest episode ever oh wow